Christmas. It's America's favorite holiday and for many, many different reasons. You see, some people love Christmas for the classic Christmas songs that fill our minds with wonderful memories of Christmas time past. And others love Christmas time because of the decorations that make the world seem much more magical than normal. Brenda and myself, we don't put up any decorations ourselves because who has time for that? But what we do is we get in the car and then we drive around looking at everybody else's hard work. And, uh, and then we celebrate Christmas and go home. But, uh, but so if you put up decorations, thank you from Brenda and myself. There are those who love Christmas because they simply love spending time with family. And, you know, they, they love spending time with those family members that they haven't argued with since Thanksgiving. So that's another wonderful part of Christmas. Without debate, Christmas is the best holiday of the year. And the main reason why, it's because Christmas is the day when Christians celebrate the physical incarnation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word incarnation, it's actually defined as that which is invested with bodily and especially human nature and form. More simply put, the word incarnation refers to the act of being made flesh. And in the context of the Bible, the word incarnation, it's a term used by theologians in reference to the way that, that God the Son shroud himself with the frailty of humanity so that he could become the savior of sinners like us. It's for this reason that our Christmas celebration ought to be centered around the incarnation of Christ Jesus. Well, it's here in our text today where we find Luke. He's recounting the events surrounding the incarnation of our Savior. And as we spend time studying Luke's account of the night when Christ Jesus was born, we're also going to examine the evidence for the incarnation of Christ Jesus. And with this as the focus, let's consider the three lines of evidence that Luke presents here in our text this morning. This, uh, this will help us to see, first of all, that the incarnation of Christ was prophetically revealed. Secondly, we'll consider how the incarnation of Christ was angelically announced. And then thirdly and finally, we'll consider how the incarnation of Christ was wonderfully witnessed. And with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Here we find Luke, he's presenting us with the story of our Savior's incarnation. Now, as you make your way to the second chapter of Luke, I just want to take a moment to provide you with a little bit of context here. It'll help you to know that the Lord sent an angelic messenger to Mary in order to form, inform her about her unexpected pregnancy was actually in the first chapter of Luke's gospel account where we learned about the day when the angel Gabriel, he showed up and announced the surprise pregnancy of the Virgin Mary. And now, here in our text this morning, well, we find Mary, she's now giving birth to her supernatural son. And with this as the focus, look with me here at Luke chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Luke writes, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of, of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. 
So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now here in the opening verses of this chapter, we find Luke. He's recounting this Roman decree which forced Joseph to return to his hometown, which was Bethlehem. And it was there where Christ Jesus was then born. And I want you to notice with me again there in verse 1 where we learn about this decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, specifically all the Roman world. And it's there in verse 2 where Luke tells us that, that the census first took place while Quirinius was governing in Syria. So we don't know how long this census went on for, but we know that you know, the, the part of the census that impacted Joseph took place while Quirinius was governing there in Syria. And, and, and there are many skeptics. There are many skeptics who are quick to point out that there's no evidence for this census. Now, it is true that we find little to no evidence about this census, and yet, at the same time, it's also true that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It's interesting to note that Tacitus and Josephus They're both ancient historians. They mention Quirinius as the governor of Syria. And so we know that there was such a governor there in the land of Syria. Not only that, but Josephus also refers to a census conducted by Quirinius there uh, who was governing Syria. And this took place in the 37th year of Caesar's victory over Mark Anthony. And, and, And now this is six or seven years a bit too late to be the census that Luke is mentioning here in our text today. And yet this also still provides us with good reason to believe that it wasn't entirely unusual for Roman rulers to conduct these sorts of surveys, much like our own government, which conducts a national census every 10 years. Simply put, there's no good reason for us to doubt Luke's account of this official census. As a matter of fact, Luke is a historian uh, of just, uh, he, he was an incredible historian who kept accurate records of what was happening there in the first century. And there is great archaeological evidence that continues to support Luke's historical account found here in this gospel. Archaeological discoveries are constantly confirming the biblical accounts of historic events. And when scholars and historians have come along and taken issue with what the Bible says, whether it be the order of certain kings or, or cities in certain areas or, or borders in certain places. You know, every time a secular scholar or, or historian takes issue with what the Bible says, archaeology eventually supports what the Bible said over the secular historians. That being the case, the skeptical scholar should be careful with their arguments that center around the lack of evidence. Well, there's no real evidence outside of the Bible for this census. Okay, well, give us some time. It's only a matter of time until someone sticks a shovel in the ground over there and discovers some piece of evidence that supports exactly what Luke said happened. So archaeological discoveries, they constantly confirm the historic events recorded in the Bible. And with that being the case, we ought to continue to consider the decree then that caused every Israelite to be registered in their hometown. We ought to consider this as a fact of history, though we don't have any extra biblical evidence for it at this point in time. According to Luke... The census that we're talking about here was based on population, and it was also based on property taxation. So yeah, Caesar wanted his money. You know, Caesar wanted his money. And so he forced all the people in different areas at different times to go back to their hometowns, register, 
so that then they could pay their property taxes uh, so that Caesar got his cut. And seeing how every Israelite was given an inheritance of property according to the tribal divisions of the Lord, well, it made perfect sense then for Joseph, being a descendant of David, to return then to the city of David. He was from the house and the lineage of King David, and, and, and so was Mary. And seeing how you know, he was betrothed to his pregnant fiance, well, it only made sense then for Mary, who again was also a descendant of David, to go back to Bethlehem. Well, I want to consider how Luke puts it here in our text today. So if you look with me again there at verse 4, here we learn that Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Here in these verses, we learn that this census was given during the time of Mary's pregnancy. And while I realize that this was a political decree which caused them to end up in Bethlehem, it's important for us to realize that the Lord was the one who was providentially placing them in Bethlehem. That's right. The Lord knows how to use the governments of this world to accomplish his, war, uh, his will. And so the Lord used the, the Roman government, to place Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem at this point in time. And the reason why is so that the Old Testament scripture might be fulfilled, which pinpoints the place of our Messiah's birth. And to prove my point, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn our Bibles to the book of Micah. I'd like you to turn to Micah chapter 5. As you make your way to the fifth chapter of Micah, I should take a moment to remind you that the Old Testament is actually filled with prophecies which were designed to reveal the ministry of our Messiah. As a matter of fact, we find more than 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures. And these prophecies not only reveal the time of our Messiah's arrival, but there are also prophecies that present us with the way that he would die. There are prophecies that point to a prophet who would announce his arrival uh, there's a prophecy about a friend who would betray him for a specific amount of money. Many, many prophecies that reveal the ministry of our Messiah. And it's here in, our, in, in the book of Messiah, or I'm sorry, the book of Micah, I should say. Here in the book of Micah, we find a prophecy that points to the particular place of our Savior's birth. And so if you would look with me here at Micah chapter 5. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 2. Here the prophet Micah declares, You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Here in these verses we find Micah. He's presenting the people of God with the precise location of our Savior's birth. And not only was Micah pointing to the birth of a righteous ruler, we should notice there at the end of the verse that his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We're not talking about some normal ruler, some, some, some average Joe, some, some you know, everyday David or something like that. We're talking about our Savior whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In this way, the Lord was prophetically pinpointing the place where the Messiah would be manifest through the physical incarnation of the virgin birth. And with that being the case, there's no doubt in my mind that the Lord was using the decree of Caesar, 
which, which forced everyone to return to the, to the land of their inheritance. This brought Joseph back from, uh, you know, from Nazareth to his hometown there in Bethlehem at the exact time when Mary was due to give birth. And according to Luke, it was while they were in Bethlehem when the days were completed for her to be delivered. Therefore, the prophecy of Micah was fulfilled on the day when Mary brought forth her firstborn son right there in the city of David. Unfortunately for her, well, the local inn was completely booked up. I don't know what kind of inn this was. I doubt it was a holiday inn. But there was no room at this hotel, probably because of the census. You know, you had a city that was probably flooded with people looking for a place to stay. And I want to consider how Luke puts it here in Luke chapter 2. Look with me again here at Luke 2. I want to focus your attention beginning at verse 6. Here again we learn that it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now here in these verses we find Mary. She's now giving birth to her firstborn son. And just to be clear, it's important to remember that Mary wasn't giving birth to the son of Joseph. This was not the son of Joseph. No, instead, she was giving birth to the incarnation of God's only begotten son. This was the Logos who put on human frailty there in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And according to Matthew, this supernatural incarnation was actually a fulfillment of another prophetic promise that God the Father presented through the prophet Isaiah. With this as the focus, I want to consider the point that Matthew was making in his first chapter as he appeals to this prophecy of Isaiah. So hold your place here in the book of Luke, and let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, I want to take a moment to remind you that the word incarnation in this context It refers to the way in which the fullness of deity was manifest in the flesh of Mary's firstborn son. Well, some skeptics insist that this doctrine of the incarnation was made up by the followers of Jesus. That's what they want you to believe. They want you to believe that the the incarnation of Christ or the claims of Christ's deity, this was made up after the fact. That's what they tell you. That the skeptics come along and say, yeah, the disciples of Christ, you know, once, once Jesus died and, and was, was buried, you know, that, that was it. And they couldn't, they couldn't deal with that, you know. So they had to go and make up the story about his incarnation and resurrection and these sorts of things. And to that I say, no. We, we certainly see prophecies about the incarnation prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Matthew is talking about uh, here in Matthew chapter 1. Look with me there beginning at verse 18. Here Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for he will save his people from their sins. 
Here in these verses, we find the angel of the Lord. He's appearing to Joseph in a dream. And the angel you know, uh, was sent for the specific purpose of confirming Mary's claim. Remember, Mary had to go to Joseph and say, Hey, Joseph, I know we're betrothed and all, you know, but I'm pregnant. Well, well what do you think Joseph's going to think about this? And, and then Mary says, uh, well, and, and by the way, I didn't cheat on you. The Holy Spirit put this baby in me. Uh, what do you think Joseph is going to say? What do you think he's going to think? You know, and, and according to Matthew here, Joseph is thinking, hey, you know, I'm not going to make a public spectacle of her. I'm not going to call her out for you know, cheating on me, but I'm just going to put her away secretly. And, and, and that's when the angel comes along and says, no, Mary is correct. Now, a lot of people struggle with this concept of the, uh, of the virgin birth and yet fail to take into consideration how doctors today can engage in artificial insemination and see no problem with that. Well, listen, if a, if a human doctor can engage in artificial insemination today, then it's a no-brainer for God, right? You know, so let's not, let's not think that you know, human doctors are, are greater than, than God himself. But Mary's claims were true, and the angel confirmed it. The angel informed Joseph that he was supposed to take Mary to be his wife. And not only that, but he instructed uh, Joseph to name Mary's firstborn son Jesus. So, so it was this angel who presents Joseph with the name of this child, Jesus. And the reason why that's so significant is because, as I pointed out in our study last week, Jesus means... Yahweh is salvation. That's what Jesus means. Yahweh, which is the name of God, yod heh vav heh. Yahweh is salvation. That's what the name of Jesus means because that is the mission and the ministry of our Messiah, to provide the salvation of Yahweh for sinners who trust in his cross. And according to Matthew, all of this was done here in fulfillment of a prophecy that was presented more than 700 years earlier. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Matthew chapter 1. I want to begin reading there at verse 22. Picking up at verse 22, Matthew tells us that all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Here in these verses, we find Matthew reminding his readers about the prophecy that the Lord presented 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And according to this prophecy, which is found in Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord would identify the arrival of the Messiah through the supernatural pregnancy of a virgin girl who would then give birth to Emmanuel. Now, for the sake of clarity, Matthew goes on to explain here that Emmanuel is not the first name of the Messiah because we saw that his name is Jesus, and we saw that in verse 21. Here we learn that it's his title, or he would be known as Emmanuel, and then Matthew points out what this means. Emmanuel means God with us. In other words, Emmanuel is the physical incarnation of the Logos of God. This was precisely the point that Paul made in the second chapter of Colossians. It's there where he assured his audience that all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form in Christ Jesus. Simply put, Mary gave birth to the physical manifestation 
manifestation of God the Son. And while I realize that this is difficult to believe, I would remind you of the fact that this incarnation of God the Son was prophetically revealed through the promises presented by the Old Testament prophets. This was all announced in advance. Therefore, we ought to celebrate Christmas with all certainty that Christ Jesus is the incarnate Logos of God. And while it's true that the incarnation of Christ was prophetically revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, it's also true that the incarnation of Christ was then angelically announced on the night when Jesus was born. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to the book of Luke. It's here in Luke chapter 2 where we find a choir of angels announcing the birth of our Savior. And if you would, let's pick up our study of Luke 2, beginning at verse 8. Here Luke writes this. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And here in these verses, we find this group of shepherds. They're living out in the fields. They were guarding their flocks by night. And this would seem to suggest that the Lord Jesus was probably born at some time when the climate was much warmer and and drier than it is there in December. According to one expert, Luke's gospel account suggests that Jesus may have been born sometime in the summer or maybe in the early fall. The reason why is because December is cold and rainy there in Judea. And so it's likely that the shepherds would have sought shelter for their flocks at night had this been December. But regardless of the fact that, you know, uh, we don't really know what day Jesus was born, there's certainly nothing wrong with us celebrating the birth of Jesus in December. Some Christians take issue with it. And and if you have a conviction that, you know, this is the wrong day to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, hey, you can have that conviction. And yet at the same time, there's nothing wrong with choosing December 25th as the day that we're going to celebrate the birth of, of the baby Jesus. And so wherever you stand on it, just be true to your own conviction and allow, you know, liberty to rule in, uh, you know, recognize that other Christians can celebrate the birth of Jesus on the 25th of December if they so choose. Setting aside the questions, though, surrounding the specific day of his birth, what we do know for sure is that the incarnation of Christ Jesus was announced to those shepherds who were there near Bethlehem. It was actually an angel of the Lord who suddenly showed up and stood before these shepherds. And being that this you know, took place there at nighttime, well, it's no wonder that these shepherds were shaking in their sandals. You know, I have no doubt that these men were filled with fear. And, and it should be noted, these, these were probably burly men. You know, these were guys who were working with animals. They were constantly, you know, forced to, to defend these, uh, these flocks. They probably found themselves oftentimes fighting with lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Thankfully for them, though, you know, this angel wasn't there to rough them up. This angel wasn't there to, to, to punish them. Or, or, no, no, the, the angel brought them good news. 
And it was good news that was cause for celebration. As a matter of fact, look with me again at verse 10. Here Luke tells us that that the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Here we find the angel of the Lord calming the nerves of those scared shepherds. And it's my guess that they were thinking that, you know, this was the end of the world. Like this angel shows up, you know, it's all uh, this incredible scene. And and I have no doubt that they were happy to hear this angel say, don't worry about it. This is good news. You know, I'm bringing good news and it's good news for the whole world. And with this as the focus, let's consider the good news being presented here in verse 11. The angel here declares, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, here in this verse, we find the angel announcing the birth of the baby Jesus. And while it's true that Jesus was this little tiny newborn infant wrapped in swaddling clothes, uh, it's also true that this is the human incarnation of Almighty God. Don't lose sight of the fact that within this little newborn baby it is the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Logos of God. He was sent in this tiny little Christmas package to save us from the wrath of God. And for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know as we consider Jesus as Savior, the word Savior found in verse 11 is rendered from a Greek word which speaks of those who rescue others from danger. Or destruction. And not only was the baby Jesus identified as the Savior of sinners, but the angel also identified the baby Jesus as Christ. And I realize that some people think that, you know, Jesus' name is like Jesus H. Christ. Uh, and, you know, maybe H for Howard or something. I don't know. Definitely not Howard. But, but maybe some other. No, no. His name is not Jesus H. Christ. He, he, his name is Jesus and his title is Christ. The title Christ actually uh, refers to his messianic ministry. You see the, the Greek word that's translated Christ, it's equivalent or synonymous with the Hebrew term Mashiach or, or Messiah. And, and so when the angel announces Jesus the Savior as being the Christ, what, what he's saying is that this is the Messiah. This is the promised Messiah of Israel. And after identifying the baby Jesus as being both Savior and Messiah, uh, the angel then goes on to insist that this baby, Jesus, is also Lord. The word Lord, which is found there at the end of verse 11, is translated from a Greek word, which was a respectful title given to those who have supreme power and sovereign authority. And so to put it simply, Jesus is not only the Messiah, he's also the Master. He's our Messiah and he's our master, and therefore he has supreme power and sovereign authority over the entirety of his creation. And yet at the same time, here he is, a little baby who's lying there in a manger. And we must not fail to recognize how this was a sign for those shepherds. As a matter of fact, let's continue to consider this angelic announcement here in Luke chapter 2. Look with me once again at verse 12. Here the angel declares, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now think about that for a moment. According to this angelic announcement, the Savior who was sent to deliver us from destruction was a little newborn baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. The promised Messiah, the almighty master, 
was lying there in a manger? I have no doubt that this was an incredible sign because, you know, there were probably several babies in swaddling clothes there in Bethlehem that night, but only one lying in a manger. And just to be clear, a manger is an animal food trough. Yeah, only one little newborn baby in swaddling clothes lying in an animal food trough because there was no room at the inn. The sovereign ruler whose beginnings are from everlasting was on this night a cute, cuddly baby who was unable to stand up on his own two legs. How incredible is that? In this way, we can see how God the Son humbled himself as he embraced the limitations of human frailty. Within that infant who could not stand up on his own two legs was the omnipotent Logos of the Lord. And yet the Logos of God humbled himself, taking on human frailty and experiencing life as a human. I like the way that Paul describes the humility of the incarnation in Philippians chapter 2. There he tells us that though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Simply put, the Lord Jesus humbly accepted the limitations of the incarnation because he wanted to come and become our Savior by offering himself as a sinless sacrifice for us. Therefore, when the angel of the Lord identified the baby Jesus as the Savior who is Christ the Lord, he was informing those shepherds that the only begotten Son of God was sent in the form of this human child in order to establish a basis for peace between a holy God and sinful men. I want to consider the way that the angels put it here as they begin to sing the praises of our Savior. It's here in Luke chapter 2. Look with me again at verse 13. Here Luke writes, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men. Here in these verses, we find this incredible moment out there in the fields of this shepherd turning into Journey to Bethlehem, the musical. Okay. Don't, don't, don't stone me to death. This angelic announcement of the incarnation culminating in this heavenly worship service, I have no doubt was a sight to behold. And as we consider the song that the angels sang on the night of our Savior's birth, there should be no doubt in our minds that all glory belongs to God. And the reason why is because he is the one who provided us with a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was by the plan of God the Father that he sent his only begotten Son, placed in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit so that a Savior could be born, live a sinless life, offer himself a sacrifice for our sins so that we might be saved. And in this way, Jesus Christ has established the basis for making peace between sinful men 
and a holy God. And so what about peace on earth? And what about the goodwill towards men that they were singing about here on this holy night? And with this question in mind, hold your place here in the book of Luke and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Isaiah. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And as you make your way to the ninth chapter of Isaiah, I want to take a moment to point out that the earth really hasn't experienced a great deal of peace since the silent night when our Savior was born. I'm sure we all realize that there's been constant war and conflict since our Savior's birth. Some may even go as far as insisting that the angels were wrong when they announced peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Because since then, we've seen nations rising up against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms and, and, and this kingdom conquering that kingdom and the other kingdom coming along after the fact and conquering that one. And, and that's been the way of the world since the birth of Jesus Christ. But those who are skeptical of the song of the angels there who sang about peace on earth and goodwill towards men, they just don't fully grasp the, the way that Jesus would bring this peace to the earth. You see, the peace that Jesus is going to bring won't be established until the time of his return. It's at the time of the second coming when he brings peace to the earth through his millennial kingdom. Let's consider the way that Isaiah puts it here in Isaiah chapter 9. Look with me there, beginning at verse 6. Here the prophet Isaiah declares, Unto us a child is born, that's the child of Mary, unto us a son is given. That's the Logos of God. Here we find the hypostatic union of Christ in in the first verse that we're looking at here. Jesus Christ is the child of Mary and the Son of God. And in this state of his hypostatic union, we discover this. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, And your version probably reads everlasting father, but I believe the better rendering is everlasting creator. And then it says this, prince of peace. And then notice verse seven, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, the Aw Mills will tell us that we're already in the middle of this. We're already in this state of never-ending peace. And I just encourage those who have bought into this theological eschatology, go turn on the news and then tell me that with a straight face, that, that, that we're in the midst of the, the kingdom of, of the Lord Jesus in which there is never-ending peace. Yeah, that hasn't happened yet. And yet here Isaiah is telling us that when the Lord Jesus does establish his never-ending peace, that this will start with the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Has the Lord performed this yet? No, he has not. Will the Lord perform this? Absolutely. The prophet Isaiah is pointing to the ministry of the Messiah And while it's true that the incarnation began with the child of Mary who was born and the son of God who was given, it's also true that there's coming another day, what we call the second advent of Jesus Christ. This is when the prince of peace returns and establishes his millennial kingdom here on the earth. And where will he be ruling from? 
the throne of David. And where is the throne of David? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Is it any wonder that the kingdoms of the world want to take control of Jerusalem? Why else do the enemies of Israel continue to attack the land of promise and try to take control of it since you know, the, the time uh, in the second century when Hadrian expelled the Jews from the land? You know, that land has been fought over by Gentile kingdoms for years and years and years, for almost 2,000 years. And why? Because the enemy does not want Jesus Christ to come back and establish the throne of David and rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years. The enemy wants to put an end to that and stop it. And we have to understand that. That the nations are coming against Israel because they don't want to see the second advent of Israel's Messiah our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But they can't stop Jesus. The second advent is going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to return. Don't believe me? Read Revelation 19. And he's not coming back with a peace treaty. He's coming back to destroy the enemies of Israel. And the enemies of Israel today ought to beware, realizing that when the Lord Jesus returns, the church is going to be with him and he is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But before he does, he is going to speak forth the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, and destroy those who sought to destroy Israel. That being the case, we do well to bow a knee before Jesus today and confess with our mouths that he is Lord. Because there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus is going to rule over the earth with a, with a rod of iron. And it's at that point in time when he will establish everlasting peace for those who trust in him. I don't know about you, but I'm ready. I'm ready for that day. But at the same time, if that day should, should be another thousand years away, the Christian can still have peace today. I want to remind you of the promise that the Lord Jesus presented in John chapter 14. It's verse 27 where he declares, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Now when I first heard a pastor teaching this passage, I thought he said pizza. Pizza I leave with you. And I was just like, praise the Lord. This is This is incredible. My pizza I give to you? I would love some Jesus pizza. I bet it's perfect. But he says, peace I leave with you. Well, that's, I guess that's better than pizza. You know, you can have the peace of God in your heart today, regardless of the fact that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Like, you can rest in the peace of God today, whether you have pizza or not. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he's promised to provide those who trust in him with peace in our hearts today. Is there going to be peace in the world? Not until he returns. Can I have peace in my life today? Absolutely. And I should, and so should you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you don't have peace in your heart today, you need to spend more time with Jesus. Because Jesus has promised to give you his peace today. 
When the angels announced the incarnation of Christ, they were promising everlasting peace to those who place their faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. And while we look forward to that day when the Prince of Peace will rule over the earth, we can still have peace today as we walk by faith with our incarnate Christ. From this, we see that the incarnation of Christ was prophetically revealed in the Old Testament scriptures, and the incarnation of Christ was angelically announced on the night when Jesus was born as they sang about the peace and the goodwill that Christ brings to those who trust in him. Thirdly and finally, we see that the incarnation of Christ was wonderfully witnessed by the people there in Bethlehem. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to the book of Luke. Here we find the shepherds. They're now on the search for the incarnate Son of God, and they didn't have to look far. And with this as the focus, look with me here at Luke chapter 2. We'll pick up our study at verse 15. Here Luke declares, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them by, uh, concerning this child, and all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, singing, Mary, did you know that you're... Okay, I, I, won't, I won't do it. They praised God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. These shepherds began by making haste to go and find this scene that had been described to them by the angels. They hurried off in search of the Savior. And it didn't take long to find them because they didn't have to go and investigate all the different rooms at the Holiday Inn. No, Uh, they realized that this baby was lying in a manger. And so where did they go? Well, they went to the stables. They, they went to possibly the caves where they would keep their flocks, you know, uh, in, in cold weather. And, and it was there where they looked for a manger, an animal food trough, in which was a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And as they saw the baby Jesus lying there in one of the mangers, it was at that moment when they realized that they were standing in the presence of the incarnate Christ just as the angels had announced. Now imagine for a moment that you're the one standing there. Imagine standing there before this manger with the little baby Jesus, knowing that this this very baby, this newborn, would grow up to become the savior of sinners, the redeemer of Israel. How would you respond? How would you respond if you realized that you're the one standing in the presence of the one who was your creator? How would you respond standing in the presence of this newborn babe who would grow up to become the ruler of Israel and the the king of kings and the Lord of lords? I have no doubt that they were filled with such excitement. And, And with all this in mind, let's consider the response of the shepherds, which is found there in verse 17. When they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. In other words, the shepherds were so excited about this incarnation of Christ Jesus that they became the first evangelists. They were the first evangelists. They immediately left that stable and they went back into Bethlehem so that they could share the story about the angels and the baby that they found wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. They made widely known what was happening there in that stable. 
They proclaimed the good news that the babe they saw there in the manger was in fact our Savior who is Christ the Lord, just as the angels told them. And in this way, they became the first witnesses by sharing the wonderful things that they had witnessed. And Luke also tells us about the impact that they made there in verse 18. There Luke writes, all those who heard it marveled. When they heard the testimony of the shepherds, they marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. You know, the, consider this concept of, of marveling. You know, like if I were to go see a new Marvel movie and it was good, I would marvel at there finally being another good Marvel movie. They wondered at the things. That's, that's what the word means. They, they wondered about these things. They, they, they were excited to hear about these things, but still curious about it. And they marveled at the testimony of these men. The minds of the people who heard the good news were filled with wonder as they heard about the angelic choir and the babe who was sent to save us from the wrath of God. And while they wondered about these things, Mary pondered. They were wondering, Mary was pondering of all these things and and considering how her life was about to change because of this little baby. We should also notice what Luke wrote there in verse 20. There we learn that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. The shepherds returned. They saw the baby. They got excited. They went out and they went out, you know, they didn't have Evite back then. You know, they couldn't just get on social media and say, hey, come to the stables. There's a miracle baby over here. Oh, they they went by foot inviting people to join them back at the stable and then they immediately returned and began to praise the Lord. And as they considered all of the wonderful things that they were privileged to witness, they were moved with joyful wonderment as they began to worship the incarnate Son of God. And in light of their example, it's my prayer that we would all become believers much like them, that we would follow in the footsteps of those shepherds Shepherds who are excited to go out and share the good news about Jesus Christ with everyone that we meet. This brings us back to the focus of this study, focus being the reason for why we should be celebrating this Christmas season. Without debate, this is the most wonderful time of the year. And and while I love seeing the way that our kids get filled with the sense of wonder around this time of year, you know, it still does sadden me that the source of this wonder is oftentimes the secular aspects of this celebration. Most kids in America, as we get closer to Christmas, they're excited about, you know, fictional characters like, 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 a, like a portly white guy who tries to squeeze down chimneys or, or a cantankerous caribou who's got some sort of you know infection in his nose or something i don't know i don't know what's happening there but there's possibly an ointment for it but seriously though you know it's sad that there are so many kids even growing up in the church who are excited about the secular aspects of this holiday rather than 
the incredible story of a God who loves us so much that the Father sends his only begotten Son to take on human frailty so that he can live a sinless life, offer himself as a sinless sacrifice, die on a cross at the hands of his own creation, and then rise from the grave on the third day so that we could be saved. If that doesn't fill you with a sense of wonder, what will? With that being the case, I, I want to take a moment to ask, you know, do we as adults recognize the incredible wonder of the incarnation? Or has Christmas just become like this, well, got to put up the lights again, got to put up the tree again, got to decorate the thing again and do the thing and go to the mall. And, and it's just like this big annual hassle just to make the kids happy. Have we lost sight of what Christmas is actually about? A God who loves us so much that he sends his son to be wrapped in human frailty in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that we could receive the greatest gift ever given, which is the grace of God received by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior. I mean, seriously, when we consider the two stories, when we consider the whole Santa Claus thing and the story of Jesus Christ... Which one is more wonderful? Which one is more, if I can use the word, magical? Which one, you know, is more incredible? Which one will provide us with the gift that continues to impact us for the rest of our lives? I don't know if you can remember what you received when you were eight or nine or ten. You know, can you think back that far and even... I remember I got my first skateboard. That was awesome. But I mean, by and large, can you remember the gifts that you received for Christmas you know, throughout your childhood? What do they really matter at the end of the day? What about the gift of grace received by faith in Jesus Christ? Isn't that much more incredible in the way that it continues to change our life day by day and year by year? Listen, if the story of Santa... This fictional mythology is what super excites you about the holiday. I'm not here to tell you whether to celebrate that or not. I'm not here to be legalistic about whether you should put up a Christmas tree or not. That's, you know, you be convinced in your own heart if that's okay for you or not. But at the end of the day, let's not lose sight of the fact that this holiday is about Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, you know, we have to remember that Santa Claus is a legalist. He is. He's a complete legalist. He's keeping a record of your kids, spying on them, making sure that they're nice and not naughty. Like, what a creeper. And he's only going to give gifts to good kids? What a legalist. Jesus Christ gives the free gift of his grace to bad kids if, he, if they repent and trust in him. The factual story of our incarnate Savior who clothed himself in the frailty of humanity is all about giving this free gift of salvation to sinners so that they can be saved. 
without debate and in every way, the factual story of Jesus Christ is way more wonderful than the fictional story of Santa Claus. And so if you want to if you want your kids to have a meaningful and, and Merry Christmas, and, and if you want to you know, try to convince them to behave, don't dupe them with a story about Santa Claus that's not going to bring them gifts if they don't behave, but rather tell them about Jesus Christ who will help them to behave by giving them the Holy Spirit that changes our lives. Present them the story of Christ's incarnation so that they might be filled with a real true sense of wonder as they marvel at the grace of God by which bad boys and bad girls can be saved. And with this as the goal, let's make sure that we take the time to be a witness much like the shepherds. Let's be a witness by inviting people to join us in this most wonderful time of the year as we remember the incarnation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we begin to wrap up this morning's message, it's my hope that we would all become those believers who realize that the incarnation of Christ is the reason for our celebration this season. And as we prepare our hearts and our homes for Christmas Day, it's my prayer that we would remember, first of all, that the incarnation is cause for celebration because Christ Jesus was prophetically revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Therefore, we can rejoice in knowing that the incarnation of our Savior has been God's plan since the beginning of time. The incarnation is also cause for celebration because Christ Jesus was angelically announced on the night when he was born. Therefore, we can rejoice in knowing that the angels in heaven have confirmed the incarnation of our Savior. And finally, we see that the incarnation is a cause for celebration because of the birth of Christ Jesus being wonderfully witnessed there in Bethlehem was then presented even up until our day and age as we've been invited to come and worship Jesus Christ and his incarnation. And in this way, We can see how the Lord has provided eyewitness testimony to confirm the facts surrounding the incarnation of Christ Jesus. And in light of these incredible facts, I encourage every Christian in closing, let's make sure that we keep Christ at the center of our Christmas. And as the world continues to embrace stories about talking snowmen who need hats to live and outcast caribou who saved the day with an illuminous snout and these sorts of things. Listen, I don't have a problem with those things, but for me, I'm going to worship Jesus. And we ought to go and, t- and, and, and present people with the incredible story of an incarnate Savior who came to save the day, not by pulling a sleigh in snow, but by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that we, by faith, can receive the gracious gift of forgiveness. And with this as the goal, let's celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ by singing the praises of our Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray.